great to be with you again this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Freedom. Uh, and we've been going through since uh, the back end of last year, we've been going through the book of Acts together. Uh, it's been a really exciting journey. We've been really enjoying this look through Acts. Uh, and we're, we're kind of going through this book in three parts. We're still in the first part, the first act, as it were, uh, of, of, of Acts, because as it stands, the church is is growing, but it's still in Jerusalem, still localized to Jerusalem where, where Jesus has, has, uh, has died and, and risen again and, and the, the early church has started from there. Um, and so today we've arrived uh, at the story of a, a man called Stephen. I've got to confess, I'm going to struggle a little bit this morning because I'm a scouser and every Stephen I've ever known in my life has been Stee, all right? <laughs> and all the way through my notes, I've referred to him as Stee because partly for brevity and partly that's just what I do. So if I call him Stee, please don't be offended. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to just give him a nickname. It's just that I'm a scouser. I call Stephen Stee all the time. He's the very first person in history who we know who, who was killed simply for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And actually, he'd be far from the last. And in fact, Christians are joining Stephen as martyrs at a frightening rate. Uh, the most recent stats we have are from 2018 from Open Doors. It's reckoned in 2018, 4,305 Christians were killed simply for the fact that they were Christians. That's about 11 people a day. So if you think about it, it means at some point on average in the time that we're meeting here this morning, someone will lose their life for believing the very thing that you're sat here believing and practicing this morning. It's quite a sobering thought. And I genuinely hope that none of us will have that experience of being a martyr. It's not something that I would wish upon anyone. But I do want to present Stephen to you this morning as an incredible template for us as Christians and someone who we've got so much to learn from. Uh, we've got a huge chunk of scripture to, carry, to cover this morning. In fact, there's nearly 70 verses in total. We're not going to read every single one of them because we'll be here all day. But I do want to pull out some bits that I think are going to be really helpful to us. So if you want to turn with me uh, to Acts, we're, in, we're going to start in chapter 6, the back end of chapter 6, verse 8. And we'll be reading through kind of to the end of chapter 7. But we will miss out a big chunk in the middle and it'll be clear where that is. Uh, so let's read together. So now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people, and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. And this is where he goes on this long speech, which we'll, we'll touch on, but we're not going to read it now because it's 40 odd verses and it's a, it's a very long speech. So we'll jump to just past, just past the main chunk of the speech. And he comes, to, comes into land like this. 
However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet, as the prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are, un- are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors who always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. It's a really powerful, quite harrowing piece of scripture, isn't it? We see someone bravely defending their faith, defending the very thing that we believe here this morning, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's dragged out and stoned on the street without any sort of fair trial, without any sort of consideration. We first met Stephen last week, didn't we? If you remember in Chris's talk uh, in chapter 6, the first part, and Stephen had been selected as one of seven people in the early church who were going to wait on tables. In other words, they were going to fulfill effectively a bit of social action. There'd been a neglect of a group of people called the Hellenistic widows. They were the Greek-speaking people in the church who, who'd been overlooked and hadn't been looked after. It was the first problem the church had really encountered. And so the church appointed seven people and say, look, you need to look after these widows. You need to care for these guys. You need to love them. Will you do that? And Stephen was chosen as one of them. In fact, he was chosen as the principal one of these. He himself was Greek, Greek Jewish, who converted to Christianity. And he was chosen because of the key qualification, as Chris told us. And that was this. He was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. But what we also learn about Stephen, far from just being someone who can wait tables and and do nice things for people, we learn that he's been performing, in verse 8, we learn that he's been performing great signs and wonders among the people. Because of this feeling of the Holy Spirit, he's enabled to do miracles, to perform healings and all sorts of other signs and wonders, which people are gathering, uh, gaining attention of. And some of the Jews who have not converted to Christianity are looking at Stephen and they're not liking what they see. They're deeply suspicious. They're not for Christianity and they see Stephen just as they saw Jesus, just as they saw John uh, and Peter, as we looked at uh, earlier on, they see them as a threat. And they're so worried about Stephen that they decide they've got to bring him before the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, this group of 70-odd 
uh, very high-powered, very clever, very wealthy Jewish people who, who form this sort of ruling body of the of Jerusalem of of the of Israel, and just like Jesus before him, and just like John and, and Peter, he's brought before the Sanhedrin on false charges. That's what, that's what the word says. They're false charges. They're trumped up. They're made up. He's accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. It tells in verse thirteen. 14. It said that this fellow never stops speaking against his holy place and against the law. And we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, verse 14, will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And this is where Stephen is prompted to respond with this stirring speech. It's the longest speech in the whole of the book of Acts, and it covers huge aspects of Jewish history. And actually, in effect, what Stephen does, he puts the Sanhedrin on trial. Suddenly it's him accusing them of constant rebellion against God, of breaking God's law, of rejecting the people who God has anointed and sent to them to bless them and lead them. But today we're going to focus on one particular aspect. There's various accusations he makes in this speech. I'm just going to focus in on one this morning. And that is this thing about you never stop speaking against this holy place. The holy place they're talking about is, of course, the temple, the heart of the Jewish faith, the place in the center of Jerusalem, which the whole of Israel, the whole of Jerusalem, the whole of anyone who's Jewish would gravitate towards. And they're saying, You've, this guy Stephen is telling us that Jesus is going to destroy this place. And they're so angry that he's just speaking against the temple. But actually in his speech, Stephen's going to teach them something of such importance about how the presence of God and how Jesus has changed everything. There's been a huge changing of temple theology and temple worship. So we need to understand a little bit before we start about the importance of temple. Why was temple such an important thing to the Jewish people? Because it's a huge theme in scripture itself. I'm going to try and make it as simple and quick as possible to be really, really easy for you. If you think of the creation story, in creation we see God creating a space in his universe for us to live. He creates a unique place. He creates earth as a place where we can live and enjoy him and his creation. God is outside of time. He's outside of space. He's outside of geography. But he creates somewhere where we can be and where we can live with him and thrive in his presence. You see that in the start of of Genesis. You see the, the Garden of Eden, this place where humanity dwells at peace with God in this space that God has created. But obviously we know from the Bible that the fall, sin, Sin entering the world ruins this. It cuts us off from the presence of God. But we see the story of Israel, that the presence of God is what sets Israel apart. It's what marks Israel as a unique people. The history shows this constant desire to create, just like God has created a space for them to enjoy him, they want to create a space where God will dwell with them on earth. In fact, they're kind of reflecting Eden back to God. They're constantly trying to create a space of their own where God will dwell and be. So we can say, right, God's created this space for us. Now this is God's space in our presence. This is where God's going to dwell. This is where we can meet with him. We can interact with him. We can dwell with him. This is where he's going to be. And it happened first through a tabernacle, a kind of portable tent, which as they moved around uh, the wilderness, they, they would take the presence of God with them. And eventually, King Solomon built this temple. He built this, this amazing building in the heart of Jerusalem. Um, the temple in Jesus' time wasn't Solomon's temple. It had been destroyed and rebuilt. 
but eventually we see this permanent dwelling place, this permanent building where the, the presence of God is going to be. And the belief really become, by the time that Stephen has given this speech, the temple is the only place, the only place where God's presence can be found in this sanctuary. We call it the Holy of Holies. It's a place where only a restricted few could enter. Just a few priests had the permission to enter the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant, this box which had the kind of what they saw as the presence of God within it. And it's separated off from everyone else by this huge curtain. And only priests could go past this curtain on certain days, not even every day, just certain times and days when they could go there. So materially, we've got this presence of God cut off by a curtain. But spiritually, what we've got really is a barrier between God's presence and humans, which we know is sin. It's our imperfection, our rebellion, which has cut us off from God. So the temple was a place where people could get close to God's where they could give thanks to him, where they could worship and they could offer sacrifices. They could receive forgiveness from him via priests. And it was this hugely meaningful and sacred place. And God authorized the temple. It's not a sinful building. It's a building that God authorized. He said, he gave Solomon the permission. He said, yeah, you can build a house for me. And he turned up in power when it was built, when it was commissioned. It's not a sin that there's a temple, but it's become this focal point. It's like we have now got God and we've placed him here and this is where he lives and he can't go in he can't go out no and we can't go in God is just restricted to this tiny little place in this temple and so when they're trying to make false charges against Stephen they want to charge him with something that's going to stick that's really going to rile people that's really going to um kind of stir people up the temple's a great thing to choose because it was just the heart of everything it's where God lived if you want to get someone in trouble then accuse them of speaking against the temple but then Steve makes this, Steve, I don't know where that came from, Steve, Stephen, passionate response shows, just shows he has, he himself has his love and knowledge of Jewish history and God's word. And he tells them of this radical change in temple theology and practice, because actually he knows that God's presence is available and open like never before. And he uses scripture actually to kind of blow apart their, their view of temple. He's trying to tell them, look, it's out of date. In fact, it was never in date. You made a mess of it. You become far too attached to this, almost this industry of temple. And you're missing out on the living, breathing presence of God in your lives. And so in this speech, he kind of hits them with two big news flashes. The first news flash is this. The temple has never been the only place where God's presence is found. It's never been that. He uses scripture to prove it to them. He shows them examples from the lives of Abraham and Moses to show that God's presence has never, ever been fully restricted to where humans want to box him in. God's presence, quite frankly, is wherever God decides to be present. Humans don't get to dictate this. We're going to play a little game. It's the game that's sweeping the nation. It's called In the Temple or Not in the Temple. It's a catchy name. I'm going to read you some of the scriptures that, that Stephen uses in his speech. And you're going to answer me, did this happen in the temple or not in the temple? Okay, so here's the first one. This is from the story of Abraham. And it says this, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Is that in a temple or not in a temple? It's not in a temple. Next one. This one's about Moses. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. 
When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went on to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled fear. In a temple or not in a temple? It's not in a temple. Here's another one. Moses again. This is the same Moses they rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? And he goes to be ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And he led them out of Egypt. And in Egypt, he performed wonders and signs in Egypt. All these wonders and signs, these, these amazing miracles, this presence of God breaking out. Is it in a temple or not in a temple? It's not in a temple. And the last one, our ancestors had the tabernacle, the covenant law, with them in the wilderness. It was a tent. They moved around. They, they carried it around with them. Was it in a temple or not in a temple? It's not in a temple. You see, Stephen's just really easily just breaking us to look all the way through your history. The most important people in our faith, Moses, Abraham, Joshua, our patriarchs. They met with God. God was present. He was with us. And it wasn't in a temple. The temple's never been the only place where God can be. He's just tearing down their understanding of the presence of God. Look, it may be a great place of worship, but we can't dictate how and when and where God should and shouldn't be present. We can't control God, because if we can control God, frankly, he ceases to be God. We can't control God by definition. He doesn't live on our terms. It's not our job to create spaces, special places and sacred places where he can come and be. Because it's not us who makes things holy. It's him. It reminds me of a film. I don't know if anyone's seen a film called Sideways. Probably only me, <laughs> never mind. Uh, it's quite old now, about 2004. Um, so Paul Giamatti, the actor in this film, he's, he's a wine lover, he's a wine snob actually, he's a proper snob. But in this film, he talks a lot about this special bottle of wine. He's got, he's got this bottle of wine. It's called a, a 1961 Chateau Cheval Blanc, which I think means White Horse. White Horse Castle. There we go, thank you. And he's had this wine for ages. It's a 1961 bottle of wine. It's 30 odd, 40 odd years old in the film. And he's saving it. He's saving it for a special moment. He's saving it for some sort of special occasion that would befit the wine. He wants to just create the perfect atmosphere, the perfect day, the perfect occasion where this wine will be opened. But he can't find it. Everything gets ruined. At some point, whatever the occasion is, it just ends up not being right, not being perfect. And eventually his friend says to him, you know, to open a bottle of 61 Cheval Blanc is enough reason to open a bottle of 61 Cheval Blanc. In other words, the opening of that sort of wine is such a special thing that it becomes the occasion. It makes the occasion. You can't create something special enough to justify drinking this wine. The wine is the special thing. And so he ends up, as you see in the picture, he ends up drinking it in a burger bar out of a plastic cup. Because it, and that becomes a special moment to him because that, that, the wine makes it special. It's a bit like this with God's presence. Because wherever God is present, it is automatically sacred and holy by the fact that he is present. And we can try and manufacture a perfect, holy place and time to host God's presence. But there's nothing holy about it unless he's actually there. But when he's there, he makes anywhere holy and sacred. Even this canteen. This is a weird room. There's nothing holy and special and sacred about this canteen, except for the fact that God turns up and God is here. And that's what makes it. The room itself is not special. But you can say the same about the cathedral. 
this grand, amazing building with artwork and stained glass windows and pews and this beautiful building. But unless God's there, it's just a building. It's nothing. It's God's presence. And God's presence alone that makes something special and holy and sacred. And that's why at the very end of, uh, of, his, of his speech that we, we looked at before, verses 48 and 50, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah from chapter 66. He says, the whole earth is God's. He's on his throne in heaven. Earth is merely his footstool. And as he sits on his heavenly throne, he looks at earth and says, you can't create something special enough for me, but the fact I'm there is amazing. How could man even begin to think that we could contain him exclusively behind a curtain in a lump of stone? The temple has never been the only place where God's presence is. The second newsflash uh, in this speech is this, that Jesus has changed the nature of God's presence forever. Stephen knows that Jesus' life, death and resurrection means God's earthly dwelling place is forever changed. We see quotes from, from the, the Gospels here, John 1, 14, The word became flesh and pitched a tent among us, and we saw his glory. Jesus came to earth. God's presence in human form, 100% God. And he made set up home here. Not in a temple, born in a stable. And he roamed the wilderness. He lived for three years as a, as a, a traveling teacher and speaker with nowhere to lay his head, he says. God's presence came in Jesus. Matthew 12, 6, Jesus himself says, look, I say to you, something even greater than the temple is here. Wake up. You think this temple is something special, and it is kind of special, but there's something so much more. I'm here. I am God's presence, living and breathing, standing right amongst you. You can touch me. You can be with me. You don't need to ask a priest to go and kill an animal and go in through this curtain for you. I'm right here, greater than the temple. And then the third one, John 2, 19, 21. And this is the bit where the accusation that Jesus is going to destroy the temple comes from, but it's a, mis a misunderstanding. Jesus answered the people, look, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of is his body. He's not talking about destroying that big stone place with a curtain in it. He is the temple. He is the place where the presence of God meets earth. He is the place where God dwells in his presence. When Jesus came, the presence of God stopped being hidden behind a curtain and tended to by priests. It stopped. It broke out of the human box they'd been put in. The presence of God started to walk the earth, healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching truth, and loving basically everyone. And then God's presence on earth was killed. But it was all part of God's plan. Jesus' death on the cross changed everything. The penalty for sin, the barrier that was between us and God, was dealt with. It was paid. Not by a temple sacrifice, not by getting a, a, an actual lamb or a bird or some grain and throwing it on an altar and burning it, 
by the sacrifice of Jesus. Punishment for sin was taken in its entirety by the only person to have never, ever been guilty of sinning. And at that moment, we read in Matthew's gospel, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The symbolism of that top to bottom, it's God who does it, top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. That's a huge moment. That's a huge moment. There's no longer a restriction on the presence of God. He's no longer locked in this temple where only a few can get him. He's out there. The presence of God is available to all. And so it leaves us with the question, if God's presence on earth was here in Jesus, but Jesus has gone to heaven, then where is it now? Where is God's presence? And I want to sum up this key message that I want to leave you with today with hopefully a reasonably memorable sentence, which I want us to say together, and I want us to drill this in this morning, that the people of God do not get to decide where to put the presence of God, but that God has decided to put his presence in the people of God. Let's try to read this together. The people of God do not get to decide where to put the presence of God, but God has decided that his presence shall be in the people of God. Let's just read it one more time. The people of God do not get to decide where to put the presence of God. But God has decided that his presence shall be in the people of God. This is a recurring theme in Acts. I know we've covered it a bit already, but we just got to keep coming back to it and hammering it home. The early church grew at a rapid rate because God sovereignly chose to place his presence, his Holy Spirit, into his people. That's how all these amazing things happen in Acts. That's how Stephen has the courage to do what he does. That's how he's working these signs of wonder. That's how Paul, uh, Peter and John healed the beggar. It's, it's how every miracle happens in Acts and ever since. It's the presence of God leading his people to do incredible things. And Stephen is simply the latest example of that. At the start of the passage, we see, in, back in verse, uh, verse 8, I think, of chapter 6, we see Stephen described as being full of the Holy Spirit. Just like the other Christians we've met in Acts so far, we know that Stephen has accepted Jesus as Lord, and he's been baptised in the Spirit. He's been in a moment where the Spirit of God has entered him. The presence of Jesus is living in him. And he knows that God's presence is not restricted to the temple anymore because it's the presence of God that's been there working in him to do these amazing signs and wonders. There's been a breakout. And the incredible, exciting, startling thing is that Stephen is not a one-off. God didn't decide, right, now that Jesus is in heaven with me, I'm going to choose one person and one person only who I'm going to put my presence into. And zap, Stephen, it's you. Congratulations. And, and that's it. You, you're, you're the one now until you die. And that's that. No. We see at Pentecost, he fills all the believers. And he goes on filling all the believers. And he fills every single Christian. And he keeps on filling us now today. It hasn't stopped. The presence of God is available to us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And more and more throughout Acts, and the early church, and right up today, God promises and promises and promises, I'm going to fill you with my spirit, with my presence. So, what does that mean 
to us today. Well, again, way back in verse 8 in chapter 6, having just said that Stephen is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, it says that he's a man of God's grace and power. And that's just two things I want to just zero in on as we look at what it means today to be a person filled with the Spirit. Because I think that's about as tight a definition of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit as you'll ever get. That when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're filled with God's grace and God's power. When God takes up residence in our hearts, we are filled with his grace and his power. And we should expect amazing things to happen. So grace, grace, this, this thing that it's something that we get given that we don't deserve. It's something that we, we've done nothing to merit. We, we don't deserve to be given it, and yet we're given it. It's something that we receive. We receive God's forgiveness. We receive his peace. We receive his blessing. It's how we're saved. It's the grace of God that we are able to have a relationship with him through Jesus. Jesus died to take the penalty of our sin, and in doing so, he puts his grace, imparts his grace to us. So not only do we not get what we do deserve, which is death, we also receive what we don't deserve, forgiveness. Freedom, peace, status as children of God. And the Holy Spirit's role in that is that he lives in us to constantly minister to us and remind us and assure us of that grace. That's what he does. He ministers to us. Romans 8, Laura, to be honest, picked a passage which is probably better than all these ones that I put on the screen this morning, that passage from Ephesians. Go back to that. Was Ephesians 3, was it, Laura? Yeah, it's a brilliant passage of just what the Holy Spirit does. I just want us to know how immeasurably loved we are. There's some more here, Romans 8, 15 to 16. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba just means like daddy. It's a really relational word. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The grace of God in our lives is that the Holy Spirit lets us know that we are just so loved, that we are his children, that he is our father, we are in his family. It's by the Spirit that we're able to call God Father. That's grace, that we're able to do that. Another measure of grace through the Spirit is, is that we get the, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 the grace of God, the Spirit of God working in our lives creates love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It's the grace of God by the Holy Spirit working in us that does this. We can't do that ourselves. I, I know, I've, believe me, I've tried at times to be these things without the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work. I end up grouchy and miserable and shouty and horrible. You can't, you can't just make this happen without the grace and the Spirit of God. And the, th the third one there, Ephesians 1.13 you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what seals the promise in our lives. He seals our identity as children of God. That's what it means when it says Stephen is full of grace. The Holy Spirit just taught him and, and shown him and ministered to him, look, you are loved. We've sung it all morning, haven't we? He loves us. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. It's the Spirit that helps us to understand that. 
It's the spirit that helps us to recognize, oh, yes, I am loved. You have done that for me. It's given, it's not earned. But by definition, if you're full of the spirit, you are a person of grace. Stephen's a man of grace because of the spirit. Do you know this morning the incredible grace of Jesus in your life? Do you know that despite the fact that you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, that you are more loved than you could ever dare hope? We are his. He's bought us. He's placed his seal on us. And we are totally and utterly under his grace. Did you come here this morning struggling with identity, with shame, with worth, with value? Well, the Holy Spirit has something to say about that. He wants you to know the grace of God in your life. He wants you to know just how loved you are, just how precious you are to him. It's his grace that enables Stephen to die with such bravery and love. Because he knows he's a man transformed by the forgiving grace of Jesus. And as he's been stoned to death, Stephen is somehow able to transfer that grace and that forgiveness onto even his killers. You remember the death of Jesus where he cries out, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen has a moment like that as he's stoned at the very end of the passage, verse 60. He begs God, he says, God, please don't hold this sin against them. Please don't hold this sin against them. That's something I think you can only say by the grace of, of God, by the Holy Spirit working in your life. As people are hurling stones at you to kill you, to be able to say, God, Please don't hold this against them. You can't, I can't do that. Not without the Holy Spirit. And actually that turns out, just as an aside, to be possibly one of the most important prayers in the early church, you could argue. Because looking onto that scene, we read that there's a young man named Saul there. Saul was there egging, egging the people on. He was holding their coats. He was watching them commit this atrocity. And he stood there and Stephen cries out, God, please don't hold this against them. And you know what? God doesn't hold it against Paul or Saul as he was then. Saul gets an opportunity. Saul gets forgiveness through that prayer, I believe. Saul gets the opportunity to become Paul, to be God's instrument, to be God's chosen uh, vehicle to get the gospel out. We'll see more of that as we come, but that's what forgiveness can do. The grace of God through his spirit allowing us to do amazing things that we couldn't do under our own power. To forgive like that, it has an incredible impact. The second thing that being full of the spirit means, means that we're full of power. Baptism in the spirit means that God is present with power in our lives. And that's a promise Jesus made before his spirit came. You see again, I've got some verses on the screen for you there. And it seems throughout the early church to be true. We go all the way back to the prophet Joel, who promises that God is going to pour his spirit out on everyone. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth. There's a promise right there of power, of dreams and visions and amazing things happening right into the Old Testament. And then Acts 1.8, Jesus says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. It's a promise. And boy, does it become true. John 14.12, Jesus says to the disciples, you know what, you will do even greater things than me. That's quite a claim, isn't it? You'll do even greater things by, than me. Not because you're special, not because you're amazingly talented, but because I'm putting the same power and presence that is me into you. You'll do even greater things. John 16, 7, it says, you know what? It's good. Jesus says, it's good that I'm going away 
Because unless I go, the advocate won't come. The Holy Spirit won't come to you. You won't be able to do anything unless I go. And let me see, not put it on the screen, but the, the whole thing of spiritual gifts, the powerful gifts that the Holy Spirit pours out on our lives to do amazing things. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit this morning, be assured you are a person of power. Not because you yourself are special or powerful or amazing, but because the powerful presence of God lives in you and is wanting to work through you. And in Stephen, this power manifested in mighty signs and wonders we read, in miracles and healings, but, and that should be true of people today. Those things are available to us. Healing, prophecy, tongues, word of knowledge. We should be seeing these things, as we are seeing these things, active in our church today. Because the Holy Spirit is living and active in his presence. God's presence is active in his power in our lives. For others, it will be in words and pictures and prophecies, whatever. The Spirit seems to be leaving us in no doubt that the Spirit means power. And Stephen simply believes this and ministers in it. But what it also empowers him to do is to stand up bravely and speak for Jesus. Because he wanted the authorities to know and understand just who Jesus is. And what a mistake they've made in rejecting him. And he did so knowing full well what would happen. He understood how the authorities would react. He understood that what he was standing up and saying probably meant curtains for him. And in verse 51 to 53 of his, his speech, he delivers that knockout blow. Guys, has there ever been a prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, Jesus. And now... You have betrayed and murdered the righteous one. It's quite, a, quite an accusation to make, but he does it bravely and with power through the enabling of the Spirit. Jesus has brought the very presence and kingdom of God with signs and wonders and great teaching. He's offered freedom and life in abundance. And they rejected him because he threatened their wealth and their hierarchy and their status. And Stephen calls them stiff-necked people, a term that God used through the prophets throughout the Old Testament. And his words are met with anger and gnashing of teeth. And the anger becomes even more fierce when actually Stephen, just to emphasize the point of hashtag not in a temple, <laughs> Stephen has this powerful vision of an open heaven. He has a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that's really significant as well, that he's standing. We, we talk about when Jesus ascends, he sits at the right hand of God, don't we? That's, that's the phrase we used to miss, he's standing. And there's all sorts of theories as to why, but I think the main one is just that Jesus is standing, ready to welcome Stephen. It's like, it's like the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, where as the son's returning home, the father's not just sat waiting, ticking away. He runs out to meet him. I believe it's the same thing. Jesus stands and says, Stephen, Come home. It's time to be with me. Presence of God, right? Even in that moment, is there. God's presence is where He chooses it to be. But actually, all the all the authorities can see is blasphemy, and they drag him out and they stone him. Do you know sometimes obedience to Jesus means stepping out in the power of the Holy Spirit and saying and doing brave things? Are you ready for that? Hopefully, in the UK, at the moment, that doesn't mean. It would result in death, but it could result in accusation and ridicule and anger and offence. But I believe as we do it, as we step out bravely, 
we bring something of the presence of God to people's lives. That's why we do what we do in Allerton Road every couple of weeks. We go out because otherwise, I think people genuinely think that God is in a church building and they can't meet him anywhere else. We're taking his presence out into the streets with us. It's what we started doing in Older Hay on Thursday and Friday. Jenny and myself and um, Trisha and Liz and Bill and Anna going in next week. We got into Older Hay and we started visiting wards and just being the presence of God in that dark place. And you know what? The response was incredible. We've been sold this kind of doom and gloom story about how it's really hard to get in there. You're going to struggle to get to speak to any patients. It's a really closed off environment. Staff aren't going to be very up for it. We're just welcomed so well. Doors were just open for us. We were able to pray with people. We saw, you know, we prayed with one person, and the mum just burst into tears as I prayed. It's just the presence of God with us in that place. Just being a bit brave. It wasn't anything special. We didn't do anything particularly amazing. We didn't stand up and do a Stephen preach in the middle of old hay. We just said, hey, if you need someone to talk to, we're here. And if we could pray a blessing on you, that'd be great. And something happened. As we take the presence of God out with us, things happen. And that's what he's designed it to do. He's not, we don't have to get people in this room to experience the presence of God because this room is just a room. We have the presence of God in us and he wants us to take it out to everywhere and everyone. Stephen didn't overvalue his earthly life. He was more concerned about using his life to honour and to preach Jesus than he was about preserving what he had. And his faithfulness to God's word and his faithfulness to God's anointed one, Jesus, mattered more than the thought that he might cause some offence, that he might be killed or they might be ridiculed. He bravely sacrifices himself to speak the truth so that others will be impacted and saved. Next week, we'll, we'll see the follow-on, not in two weeks, sorry, we'll see the follow-on of what just what that achieved. I want to leave us this morning just, just to just to really try and grasp hold of this idea, this truth, that we are the ones who God has put his presence in. We are filled with grace and power because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. 